Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. All right. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome everybody to Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now on our 37th episode. You know, Treasury published its final guidance for the American Rescue Plan Act, aka ARPA, regarding the Capital Projects Fund. And we're pleased that Treasury's final rules prioritize investments in fiber optic infrastructure as such advanced technology better supports future needs. So really glad that they took our comments to light and really ended up with the final rules uh, prioritizing fiber. You know, last week we saw the FCC re- uh, released another tranche of ARDOF awards. The vast majority of these award winners are going to deploy fiber. And the awards that received the largest amount of support appear to be electric co-ops such as Clay County Connect, Connect2, First Internet, Gibson, uh, PGEC Enterprises. And other major fiber awardees are uh, Point Broadband Fiber and BEC Cooperative. So congratulations to those ARDOF winners and look forward to them getting their fiber projects underway. You know, with respect to the bipartisan infrastructure deal, we're now only five days away from the speaker's target to call a vote. You know, we are seeing some members such as House Majority Whip James Clyburn warn the state might slip. Although we're also seeing others, such as House Majority Leader Hoyer, affirming the chamber will vote on the bill on the 27th. In any event, we're seeing strong bipartisan support, and we anticipate this bill passing and being acted into law this fall. So I'm really excited about today's Fiber for Breakfast session, as we're going to be discussing the latest surveys results from Lightwave and the Fiber Broadband Association on 10 Gig Pond. I think you will find the results very surprising. Uh, before I introduce today's guests, I'd like to introduce Trish Ehlers, Martin, who's going to walk us through some housekeeping items. Thanks, Gary, and good morning to everyone who's joined us today. I'll quickly go over a few logistical items for you all. If everyone would keep in mind that you're in listen mode only, to ask a question, you can type it into the question box located within your control panel at any time during our presentation. We will host a Q&A session toward the end with our panelists. This presentation is being recorded and will be available to members on FBA's website within 24 hours. You can find the recording in the events tab under the Fiber for Breakfast drop-down option. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be prompted to complete a very brief feedback survey. Please take a minute to do that and we really appreciate your input. I'll pass it back to Gary now to introduce our panelists and get us started. Thanks, Trish. And again, good morning and welcome, everybody. I'm Gary Bolton, the President and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. You know, last time we met with Terry Young of A10 Networks and Gabe Gums, a security expert and host of Privacy Please podcast, a discussion of cyber threat trends and their implications for rural broadband service providers and their subscribers. This morning, our guest is our good friend, Stephen Hardy, the editorial director and associate publisher of Lightweight and Broadband Technology Report. Stephen will discuss the results from a recent survey conducted by Lightway and the Fiber Broadband Associations. Finding from the survey uncovered investment plans in 10 gig pond in the next two years and technology and supplier preferences. 
We'll also discuss what does this means for rural America, you know, what will be the effect from the infrastructure plan, and what this means for suppliers and the overall supply chain. You know, Stephen Hardy is the editorial director and associate publisher of Lightweight and Broadband Technology Report, part of the Lighting and Technology Group and Endeavor Business Media. Stephen is responsible for establishing and executing editorial strategies across both brands' websites, email, newsletters, events, and other information products. He has covered the fiber optic space for more than 20 years and communications and technologies for more than 35 years. So welcome, Stephen. Really great to have you here. And for our audience, please type in questions as you go for our Q&A at the conclusion of the presentation. So with that, I'll turn it over to Stephen. Thank you very much, Gary, and welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us. And yes, indeed, Fiber One is my cereal of choice. Uh, so as Gary has mentioned, um, the Fiber Broadband Association and the two brands I manage partnered on a survey to discover uh, what the plans are out in the market for moving to 10G. So today we're gonna to talk a little bit about the survey itself. Um, and of course, provide you with some of the results in particular, we'll cover who the respondents were, what's driving their interest in 10G, uh, how those drivers are manifesting themselves in 10G deployment plans, the technology choices that our respondents are considering uh, making and uh, how much they'll spend. Uh, and at the end, we'll have some time, we hope, for a discussion and, as Gary mentioned, uh, the ability to address some of your questions. So if we could go to the first slide, uh, as Gary mentioned, uh, my two sites and uh, the Fiber Broadband Association collaborated on this survey, which uh, was conducted uh, this past June. Uh, hopefully you've heard of both LightWave and Broadband Technology Report. If not, uh, LightWave covers optical communications from soup to nuts uh, globally, while Broadband Technology Report provides uh, network technology information to uh, cable system operators and independents in the Americas. So uh, combining our three databases created a global database of uh, survey recipients. But uh, today we're just gonna focus on uh, the response from North America and Latin America uh, in recognition of the uh, FBA membership in the LATAM chapter. Uh, I will be doing a webcast later on this year on the LightWave site uh, that will uh, discuss all the respondents' uh, 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 information, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, and uh, you know, repeating what I had on the agenda, these are some of the main points that we'll be looking at today. So about 80% of the respondents that we'll be discussing uh, today came from North America. And as you can see, for the most part, uh, they came from uh, operators who are serving fewer than 100,000 subscribers. Uh, so generally some of the smaller footprints, um, only 12%. Uh, uh, are addressing as many as a million subscribers uh, and only 13% had more than a million. That said, uh, despite the footprint sizes, only uh, about 40% of the respondents said that uh, at least half of their, or a little more than half of their respondents could be considered rural. Uh, as a matter of fact, 41% uh, said that uh, less than 25% of their subscribers could be considered rural. 
and only 11% said that 100% of subscribers are rural. So, uh, you know, while we did have rural, uh, strong rural representation uh, in 11%, uh, for the most part, uh, the subscribers are in suburban or urban areas. Um, for the most part, as you might imagine, uh, the uh, subscribers are a combination of residential and small business for the most part, uh, a 70, 30% uh, ratio residential to business was uh, the most typical by a, actually a fairly wide margin. And anchor institutions uh, also were an emphasis as far as service. Uh, that said, many uh, of our respondents also said they're attempting to serve large enterprises as well. Um, interesting enough, uh, only 47% said that uh, they're serving more than half of their residential subscribers directly with fiber and 61% said that they're serving more than half of their businesses with fiber. So most of the respondents still operate uh, hybrid uh, media networks or multimedia networks. You know, we take this to mean that uh, there's still plenty of DSL out there, of course. And uh, our respondents did include some folks from the uh, cable MSO community and uh, along with perhaps some of the smaller independent operators, uh, they're still using HFC uh, architectures as well. So as far as what's driving their interest in Tenjin, not surprisingly, just the ability to provide uh, higher speed services was uh, the most popular option selected among our respondents, uh, followed by competitive differentiation. Um, the ability to potentially address new customer segments uh, it was also a pretty strong driver, as you can see here, uh, followed by the delivery of new services, uh, support for 5G rollouts, and uh, the ability to serve more subscribers for port. Um, I'm, I have to admit, I'm always a little bit skeptical when I, I see people talking about supporting 5G rollouts uh, with a, a 10G network, particularly if it's a PON network. Um, GPON and EPON, of course, have uh, been somewhat problematic as far as mobile services support because of latency issues. Uh, the 10G um, uh, technology generation promises to uh, solve some of those. And so uh, certainly, you know, 5G and 4G uh, support becomes uh, a little bit uh, more likely if you're moving to a, a 10G PON architecture. So uh, we'll, we'll see uh, in the future how many of those plans uh, actually involve uh, PON directly or just taking their 10G PON uh, cabling, splitting out a fiber and running it directly to, uh, uh, to a tower or whatnot for service in some other way. As far as what percentage of your 10G Net, or your network is 10G enabled right now. Uh, as you can see, more than half of people have uh, fewer than 10% uh, of their subscribers served by 10G. And uh, as a matter of fact, 32% uh, uh, of the total respondents said that none of their subscribers are being supported by 10G right now. That said, there is a, a, a fair amount of deployment underway um, as far as 10G. 10 gig, so uh, you know between the 20% uh, that have uh, a little less than uh, you know to, from 10% to 50%, and those who have more than half of their subscribers um, served by 10G, uh, you know add them up, you've got 46%. So there uh, is a fair amount of 10G already out there in the field, as uh, we've noted, uh, you know from uh, some of the announcements coming out of uh, 
some of the service providers as, as well as their vendor partners. So as far as what people are planning on doing over the next two years, um, we anticipate seeing that. Um, so as you can see, um, the folks who are uh, have Tenji uh, in their networks are, are planning on building on top of that. 36% uh, saying they're planning to add more and 18% thinking that the, they're going to be finished with their 10G deployments over the next two years. Uh, meanwhile, full 30% are planning to start 10G deployments uh, and only 13% say that they don't know um, or, or they have no plans and another 3% say that, uh, say that they don't uh, know at this point. So as far as technology choices are concerned, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, XGS PON is the most popular uh, technology option among the respondents who do plan uh, to uh, build out some 10G infrastructure uh, um, or add to the 10G infrastructure they have already. 12% uh, are using 10 gig EPON. Um, which is a technology that was uh, particularly popular a few years ago, uh, EPON in general anyway, uh, among uh, cable operators. Uh, only 4% are planning on using NGPON2. No, I don't know if all of those respondents were from Verizon. Um, as you may be aware, NGPON2 is a multi-wavelength option uh, from uh, based on ITUT standards. Uh, the, Trick here has been the fact that the uh, ONT transceivers need to be wavelength tunable. And it's been uh, something of a technology challenge to create those transceivers uh, at a price range that uh, operators um, are, are willing to pay. Uh, certainly there's still technology development going on in that area. One thing I noted that uh, in terms of uh, Pairing down the respondents from the, the global perspective to uh, North America and Latin America is that the number of people saying that they're NG, uh, they were planning on using NGPON2 did go down. So that means uh, there are some uh, people planning NGPON2 deployments uh, outside of uh, this side of the Atlantic. So uh, NGPON2 is uh, perhaps spreading in popularity a little bit. Uh, one thing that uh, I, I found somewhat interesting is that active ethernet and point to point uh, is going to be the preferred technology of almost 20% of our respondents. Uh, of course, point to point has been a standard technology for uh, addressing business customers, uh, particularly if those customers required uh, more bandwidth than uh, a GPON or an EPON architecture uh, could provide. So, it's possible that, that some people are, are uh, talking in particular about serving their business customers this way or continuing to serve their business customers this way. Uh, but uh, as we can see here, it's not all PON out there. So uh, here's what we uh, uh, found out about in terms of how much money people were planning on spending this year. Uh, as you can see, um, it's pretty evenly spread among uh, less than 100,000, 100,000 to a million and over a million dollars. Uh, as you can see, if you're uh, quick with math, that uh, we don't have uh, as many as uh, 100% um, here. That's because 24% uh, 
of our respondents said that uh, they didn't know how much they were planning on spending. And I should let you know that um, of the uh, less than 100% uh, figure, uh, only 4% uh, said that they were planning on spending no money. So certainly there seems to be a, a fair amount of uh, interest and in plans to, uh, to invest in Tenji going forward. So in conclusion, um, there does indeed seem to be pretty strong interest in Tenji. Uh, that seems to be regardless of the size of the operator or the uh, mix of, of rural or urban subscribers. Uh, delivering high speeds to or higher speeds to customers is, is the main driver, but there are other strong ones as we just described. Uh, not surprisingly, XGS Pond is the most popular approach. And that means that uh, vendors should be kept pretty busy uh, delivering 10G PON technology uh, for the next two years, at least, uh, of course, uh, assuming that they have their supply chains in order. Uh, and with that, um, let's open the floor for some questions. Um, and uh, hopefully you found this interesting. Gary? Hey, Stephen. Yeah, great stuff. So the survey was for both North America and Latin America. So these results, are they the mixed results of both um, regions? Yes, so both North America and Latin America, as I said, 80% uh, of the respondents uh, whose um, data was described here were from North America and only about 20% from Latin America. Did you see any? I do not have, a, I, I did not break out North America versus Latin America, so I, I can't give you a uh, uh, a direct answer if I can anticipate what you're going to, to ask regarding uh, you know differences between North America and Latin America. Uh, I don't expect them to be uh, significantly different, but I can certainly follow up with that. Yeah, I would just think um, like for instance, you had 12% um, 10 gig EPON, um, mm -hmm. which I would see you know that's very popular in Asia and you know other regions. Right. Um, so I didn't know if that was popular in um, Latin America, what you're seeing here. Yeah, and unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to, to parse just the Latin American um, respondents, but uh, I can certainly follow up on that. Yeah, so one of the questions that came in, I thought was a really good one. Uh, thanks, Sean. It's, uh, so Virgin Media and O2 recently announced moving to fiber the home and replacing their HFC network as it has better overall OPEX with an equivalent CapEx investment is HFC DOCSIS 4. So improved financials didn't make your list of reasons to move to 10 gig. Um, is there any feedback or thoughts on the CapEx, OPEX impact? Well, certainly, uh, for example, Verizon moved to fiber the home in the first place because of the, uh, the OPEX savings. And uh, I believe that's another one of the reasons that uh, they are moving to NGPON 2 because they, feel that the multi-wavelength capabilities uh, will enable them to, uh, to reduce their OPEX and, and provide a more flexible network. Um, we're certainly seeing uh, some operators move from uh, HFC uh, to full fiber. Altis USA, for example, is, uh, is one operator that uh, has uh, decided to move to an all fiber format. Uh, there was another one that actually was just announced today that was actually one of the smaller operators uh, that traditionally has had an HFC network that's moving to full fiber as well. Uh, OPEX is certainly one of those. 
Uh, I think the other thing is that while uh, there's certainly a lot of work going on uh, uh, among the cable MSO community, cable labs and whatnot, uh, in what they call their 10G initiative, um, being able to support symmetrical 10G is probably still a couple of years away. And so people who feel like they need uh, the full 10G capabilities, both upstream and downstream, uh, are probably uh, looking a little bit more closely at uh, the 10G pond um, uh, options out there um, and, and seeing that as, as certainly a more future-proof uh, uh, path towards uh, keeping ahead of uh, operator or their uh, subscribers' requirements as, as well as their own operational needs. Uh, of course, you know, we're talking 10G now. There's already technology out there for 25G. There are standards underway for 2550. And Cable Labs is actually starting a 100 gig pond effort based on coherent transmission technology. So uh, there certainly appears to be quite the runway for, uh, for future uh, capacity expansion uh, in, in the pond community. So for rural America, I mean, so one of the things I think is interesting if I look at your results that um, nearly, I guess, over um, 85%, or I should say 84% of your respondents have 10 gig plans in the next two years, whether they're starting, adding, or finishing, um, which is pretty phenomenal when cable and wireless are arguing with um, you know, the Congress to lower these standards from you know, 100 megs metric to 100 by 20, and, as low as they can possibly get. I mean, what do you make of that? Is the whole world moving? You know, from your survey results, it looks like everybody's moving 10 gig and beyond. Yeah, so I mean, obviously to some degree, the the drive to keep the uh, official definition of, you know, adequate broadband to as low as possible, uh, uh, you know, certainly would benefit the people who have, um, uh, you know, infrastructure in place already that they really don't want to upgrade. Um, so I, I think as we're seeing um, from the, so one, yeah, from the from the survey, what we saw is that you know certainly providing higher speed um, uh, services was the most popular um, uh, choice for driving uh, 10G. The other one, the second one, was competitive differentiation, and so. Uh, what we're, I, I think, part of what we're we're seeing here is uh, both a, a desire to uh, uh, provide their their customers with this, as as great a service as they can, but also wanting to, at the very least, keep pace with with competition. And so, um, I, I I think uh, you know what that what that means. I I think is is that um, despite the the definitions that uh, you know that we were just discussing uh, between you know government programs to uh, boost up uh, broadband uh, service capabilities as well as just uh, uh, broadband access uh, and the desire uh, to stay ahead of the competition. Um, I, that, you know I think that's what's driving what we're seeing here in the survey results. So would it be safe to say from your results on the and what you're seeing on the deployment of 10 gig pond is any community that doesn't deploy fiber is going to be left behind in the future. 
Well, certainly uh, they're going to be, uh, you know, speaking of competition, if they're, uh, you know, looking to draw new businesses and, uh, you know, keep, uh, you know, the young residents uh, in the area, uh, they're going to be at a disadvantage if they don't have uh, an adequate broadband infrastructure. So one of the questions that came in, is there any data or growth rate in the respondents planning to deploy or deploying XGS versus uh, active ethernet? So what would uh, the growth rate look like in this? We didn't specifically ask, you know, what percentage of your infrastructure are you planning to, uh, uh, to upgrade? Uh, we, we basically just said, you know, are you planning on upgrading or planning on starting and what's, what's your technology of choice? Uh, so I, I can't say I have uh, any direct data on you know how fast active Ethernet infrastructure is is growing versus um, you know pond-based infrastructure. I mean, obviously, overall, the fact that you know so many more people are deploying pond versus active Ethernet would indicate, from a pure market perspective, there are you know 10G pond is uh, there's more 10G pond growth out there than there would be active Ethernet uh, growth, but. Uh, uh, well, from yeah. your experience covering um, fiber optics for so long, is it typically after you Ethernet is mostly deployed for low density? So my thought is that active Ethernet would be deployed for low density. It would be deployed if you were, you know, particularly if your business model was heavy on, on uh, supporting business customers, particularly larger enterprises. Um, active Ethernet would potentially be helpful if, uh, particularly before the advent of 10 gig PON, if you were looking to support, uh, you know, mobile services uh, networks, uh, you know, front hall, back hall, that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, and I think uh, at least at one point, you know, again, if you look at G PON and, and E PON, we'll, we'll leave B PON aside for the time being. Uh, you know, the greatest amount of bandwidth you could provide, uh, you know, was two and a half gig if you were talking GPON. If you thought you needed more than that uh, for some reason, or if you wanted to future-proof, uh, active Ethernet or a point-to-point -point approach was the uh, your best option. We got a ton of questions here, so maybe let's try to get some rapid fire. So any respondents from Canada? Uh, I'm sure there were. We did not ask which country you are from. We just asked which region you are from, but uh, I'm confident there are a few Canadians in there. So did you get a sense for what um, services people will offer above one gig? So uh, we did ask people what kinds of services they were um, offering. Um, so for example, um, just bringing up the survey here, uh, Internet, obviously broadband internet was uh, the most popular uh, symmetrical gig. Uh, internet access was um, uh, obviously very popular as well, just in a general sense. 83% um, are supplying voice, uh, about 65% are supplying video. Um, around 20%, a little over 20% are looking at things like uh, home and facility security. Uh, and uh, a bit under 15% were looking at telehealth. So there is definitely a, a service mix there, uh, you know, with the standard triple play being obviously the most popular. So with XGS PON, you can kind of mix and match between PON and XGS, I mean, and 10 gig PON. 
were you seeing wholesale swap outs to go to 10 gig pond or are you seeing more on a, um, a home by home basis of upgrading um i what i'm seeing is kind of more of a an, an evolution i think people are rolling out 10g kind of on a as needed or opportunity basis um you know you know unless you're you're going you know directly from say a copper-based infrastructure as we were talking about the conversion from hfc to all fiber as well uh if you're making that kind of a conversion then certainly starting at 10g would make the most sense um so uh I, you know i think that's that's what we're seeing all right two really quick ones um is 10 gig enough for the next 10 years or should service providers be looking to 25 or 50 or more so obviously that's going to depend on the service provider. Um, needless to say, there are still people who don't know what they would do with a gigabit to the home, uh, even though that's being offered. So the question is, uh, do you need more than a gig? Uh, and is you know is that being offered due to customer need or again you know competitive differentiation? That said, you know one with the growing use of uh, or growing instance of work from home. Uh, or uh, development of smaller businesses, perhaps gaming and, and whatnot, um, you know, the higher speed services actually may prove uh, uh, appealing to uh, at least some uh, customers in, in the near future. Uh, the other thing too is particularly if you start converging services over your pond-based network, um, then yeah, you could see your, your bandwidth uh, requirements, uh, if not approaching 10, uh, exceeding 10 gig, uh, getting pretty close to it uh, to the point where you know it might make sense for future proofing purposes to to go to something higher. All right, one last question: um, splits. What are you seeing? 16, 32, 64, 128. What what are they doing with 10 gig networks? Again, it's going to depend on on the operator. Um, I don't. So uh, and certainly one of the reasons you could go to 10 gig was would be to you know uh, as we are. Kind of indicating one of the questions being able to uh you know increase your number of splits off the same olt port um i have to say i can't i haven't seen any definite trends in terms of everybody's going in in this direction but as we've seen the ability to uh support uh higher split rates in uh you know with uh with 10 gig is is something that is appealing to at least some of our respondents well, I'll end on this really interesting comment from one of our audience members who's an operator. He says he's doing a 10 gig pond network with a 1 to 128 split. So 128 split compared to 32 split G pond. And the range is shorter and he's using connectorized ODN. But what he found is the um, XGS, the 10 gig pond, is actually cheaper than G pond with the greater split. So a way to put in 10 gig pond and be able to be. Um, save money. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So Stephen, great stuff. I always love your work. Um, thanks for sharing with us today. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, so next week, our topic is going to be 10 steps to avoid a cyber breach with uh, my good friend and former colleague, Chris Cook, CEO of Locut, and Chris Silvers, CEO of CG Silvers Consulting, both cybersecurity experts experienced in both offense and defensive security so you're not going to want to miss that we look forward to getting back together next wednesday so thanks everyone for joining us today thank you stephen <laughs>